This podcast is marketing material for a South Africa investment professional only. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, our last podcast for 2020. It has been a strange and interesting year, and we thought it would be a good way to cap it off with a discussion with investment professionals from our multi-asset team. Ugo Montrucchio and Michael Devereaux are portfolio managers on our Section 65 approved Global Managed Growth Fund and are no strangers to South African audiences. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Condi. Thanks, Condi. Right. As I said, it has been a strange year with a lot of things that have happened in a relatively short space of time. Seems as though epidemiology has become synonymous with economics in that how you call the trajectory of of the coronavirus determines your view on on the global economy. Could you maybe to start off with share with our audience what our baseline economic scenario is for the coming year? and, And perhaps we can focus on one or two other possible scenarios, those that we feel have a higher probability of occurring than than others. Sure. I mean, what a strange year this has been, and probably one that we are all looking forward to see is back um, very shortly. So looking at uh, um, what uh, the economic growth has been for the year, our uh, forecast at the moment for the year that is coming to a close um, sits around at minus 4.7% of GDP, and that number is pretty much close to what the consensus for the time being actually is. Now, clearly, we have only one month to go to the end of the year, so probably more relevant to look at 2021. And for 2021, our aggregate global forecast for GDP is approximately 5.1%, which is slightly below the standard consensus. Now, what is more important to me, however, given the inevitably large error in those forecasts, is one important consideration, which is If we break down the composition of the next year growth, we we notice a sharp difference between the developed economies versus the emerging economies. In fact, if we we only look at emerging economies, our expectation is that the output at the end of 2021 will actually be higher than the one we had pre-COVID, whereas it will take a few more months into 2022 before the same can be said for the uh, developed world. Now, I mentioned the the difficulty in making forecasts given uh, the large numbers we are talking about. And to your question, Condi, what can go wrong or what can go right next year? I think looking at next year, we can see some symmetry between upside and downside. And I can see a world where actually the economic growth surprises to the upside, particularly if the rollout of the vaccine is successful between, let's say, Q1 and beyond. That's essentially the very positive case. The negative case, on the other hand, hinges on two things. One, that the immediate aftermath of the second wave in the Northern Hemisphere proves to be wrong, worse than what we uh, anticipate. And number two, that perhaps the stimulus that has been so supportive this year on both monetary and fiscal side actually is withdrawn too early. These are things are the two extreme scenarios that we should be uh, monitoring. Uh, as I said, one is on the upside and one is on the downside. Our core expectation is for a rebound into 2021. Thanks for that, Ugo. You speak about sort of the 
uh, trajectory of the um, virus into the new year. So we've already started seeing sort of second and, and potentially third waves in certain jurisdictions in Europe and particularly the UK, where you guys are, are, are domiciled at the moment. Um, you know, Brexit was on, on, on many's lips um, you know, a, a while ago. Um, that seems to have been overtaken by the virus, but, but it's still very much a, 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 a key issue um, that is kind of in the, uh, in the foreground. Um, you know, we've got the end of December as kind of the D-Day for, for, for the UK. How, how do you guys see the regional outlook for, for the UK and perhaps for, for Europe? From a South Africa perspective, so Germany and Euro and, and the UK are, are important trade partners uh, from our perspective. And so this is quite a pertinent question for our market. Be interested to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. So we, we are clearly in the middle of the of the second wave of uh, infections, uh, and in fact, we have experienced, uh, I would say, quasi severe lockdowns between the continental Europe and uh, the UK. So far, the attrition to economic activity has not been uh, as bad as the first lockdown, maybe because the measure that have been implemented during the second wave has not been comparable uh, in their austerity to what we experienced between March and April. So, so far, I would say the evolution of the pandemic has been certainly bad. The second wave is, uh, is definitely running. But uh, I would say that the economic uh, shortfall generated by the counter evading measures has not been uh, as bad as we uh, experienced earlier on in the year. Now, this, to, to your second point, Condi, uh, we are obviously in the finishing line of this endless negotiation between the British government and the European Commission for the future of the relationship between the two uh, countries. Our core scenario is that an agreement in the end will be struck. Um, it will be a very uh, lean agreement and it will probably be uh, only covering certain aspects of uh, goods circulation and certainly not address many important areas of uh, the services industries. Um, but we do expect that deal to occur. Should we not see a deal over the next few weeks, I would say three weeks, then uh, I would say that the economic downside, particularly if uh, they, the absence of a deal is accompanied by some acrimony between the parties, um, I would say the economic downfall should be fairly material. But as I said, that's not the base case scenario looking at year end. Right. Perhaps while we're talking about various regional um, dynamics, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the U.S. Um, th there's obviously the issues around the transition to the new administration. Um, do, do you have a sense of what the policy trajectory, both domestically, U.S. domestically and internationally, including things like, you know, U.S.-China relations, what that will be like and the impact on economies and, and, and markets? I mean, we've already seen the shall we say, challenging discussions in terms of uh, stimulus packages between the Democrats and the Republicans, and, and also Jay Powell from a Fed perspective saying that they, they would be willing to use all tools at their disposal. would be keen to get your thoughts on that as well. Well, that's a, a great question. And as you can imagine, one that uh, occupies a lot of our, uh, a lot of our discussions. So first, firstly, Barring an extreme scenario during the um, runoff of the elections in Georgia in January, 
we should expect a divided Congress. We should expect the Senate to be in Republican control and the House of Representatives to be um, in control of the Democrats. That's pretty much consensus at the moment, and that's what we think will, will happen in January. Now, under that premise, uh, it's quite obvious that the degree of bold measures on the fiscal side will likely be curtailed once they make their way to uh, Capitol Hill. And therefore, it's very unlikely that we will see some very spectacular fiscal policy being implemented anytime soon. That, that being said, however, I think the important development for us investors is that uh, pa, um, the new uh, US president, uh, Joe Biden, has named Janet Yellen as the new head of Treasury. That's a very important nomination because for a start, she is a very um, important figure within the Democrat Party and one that can uh, essentially reunite the different wings of the party, but also critically is somebody who is well seen by the Republicans as somebody who can actually straddle the grounds between the two parties. With Janet Yellen at the Treasury, having been formerly the head of the Federal Reserve and having insisted on the importance of fiscal policy alongside monetary policies, I actually have quite high conviction that the United States will be able to pass uh, a new fiscal package. Now, to your last question on the relationship between the United States and China, I think the public opinion at the moment is persuaded of the fact that the relationship will become much better moving forward. I actually hold a slightly different views in the sense that the Democratic Party traditionally has been quite uh, adverse to, to China for the, for, uh, for the reasons that everyone can think of, including the fact that many jobs were actually um, extracted from the US and domiciled in, in China. And China's recent assertiveness in terms of uh, technological might is still something that the United States as a, as a whole uh, is rather uncomfortable about. So I don't think that the relationship between the two blocs will become much better moving forward. However, what is very likely to happen is that it will become far more predictable a relationship than what we lived through over the last three years. It will be more policy and discussion around the table than tweets at random hours at night, which from our perspective of an investor is obviously a much better state moving forward. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for that, Ugo. Perhaps before we start uh, discussing what implications of all of this are on, on asset classes, um, maybe you can just reiterate, I think you touched on this a little earlier on, what are the key issues um, and perhaps risks that, that uh, investors should be looking out for in the coming year? Yeah, risks, as you can imagine, abound. Uh, you know, we could have a relapse of the virus which exceed our projection. And with that relapse, we could have a, uh, a dent to economic activity, which is greater than what we currently uh, anticipate. We could have an unsuccessful rollout in. Clearly, everyone is now uh, moving into 2021 with the projection that come second quarter or third quarter of next year, large part of the world will have received the vaccination. Some risks exist in terms of that uh, successful uh, rollout. But I would say what is more important for us investors is that if we look into 2021, I think the risks right now are really symmetric. 
on one side, we have markets which have become clearly more expensive, and that per se brings some downside risk if uh, the high expectations are not met. On the other hand, we could find ourselves in 2021 with an economic recovery and pent-up demand, which is greater than what we all anticipate. And that could actually be a very positive scenario for risky assets. So I think at the moment, our scenario is pretty, our core scenario is fairly constructive. And we acknowledge that risk exists on both sides of the debate, but we tend to lean on an optimistic picture as we look at the new year. Fantastic. Thanks for that, Ugo. Perhaps we can now turn into, right, so with, with all of this economic backdrop, what does this mean from an asset class perspective? Um, to, to, to put it bluntly, is, is this a risk-on environment? Hey, thanks, Condi. So the view on whether we're approaching 2021 as risk-on or risk-off, I perhaps, I believe, needs a little nuance. So compared to when we launched the portfolio in July 2020, our outlook today is more balanced, as Ugo has said. And with that balance, we've rotated the portfolio from one that was very much very growth um, focused to one that's more balanced between value opportunities and growth. We've also, and you can see, you, you can perhaps see us reflecting optimism in this regard. We've also greatly reduced the amount of duration that we hold in this portfolio. Um, such that we went from being overweight government duration to being underweight government duration versus benchmark. And the reason is we simply find much better opportunities outside of government bonds in the credit space um, and alternatives. And I'll be happy to elaborate on that uh, later on. And finally, we're also approaching 2021 with an open mind. We've built up a good bit of cash right now, and we're looking for opportunities to deploy that cash um, outside of what you what we might think of as expensive um, headline equity and bond indices. We're trying to look underneath the surface for more interesting opportunities later. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks for that, Michael. Uh, you, you alluded to sort of a, a bit more of a balance between value and growth. Um, obviously, we've seen this rotation in markets um, with, you know, since the news of the vaccine breaking, um, you know, uh, recovery shares have, have, have recovered quite, quite significantly. Um, you know, similarly, sort of the, the conversation around mid cap and small cap versus large cap. Um, in terms of, you know, the likely trajectory, those will, will follow, assuming that, uh, you know, the, the vaccine story does play out. Um, you know, at the moment, you say it's currently balanced. What, what would, I guess, be the catalyst that would force you, well, not force, but that, that would encourage you to shift a little bit more towards the value side of the spectrum? So, as you can imagine, the value versus growth debate is one that we agonize over simply because it's such an important view to get right. And to us, the one of the turning points really began towards the end of this year when the vaccine announcements not only came earlier than expected, but were also more effective than expected, beyond well beyond some people's more, most optimistic scenarios. 
Therefore, to us, this is a very good sign. It's chopped off that dangerous tail risk that um, market assets had priced in, and it's definitely a lot more beneficial for global growth than we previously expected. In fact, much more than, say, a, a large U.S. fiscal stimulus package would have given us, for example. And so, having seen the having seen these vaccine announcements, we started effectively rotating from a very growth-heavy portfolio to one that has considerably more value exposure through, as you mentioned, buying uh, small small caps and medium cap companies, but also more global value exposure in general. So we're looking at Europe, we're looking at Japan, we're looking at uh, the UK and emerging markets. So there is a lot of value that can be unlocked through, um, through, through the impact of the vaccine. Now, what could take us further into value land? The answer for us is very simple. We need to see bond yields go up further to validate this sea change in, in attitudes between value versus growth. I think we cannot stress this enough. Bond yields need to go considerably higher in the developed world if value is to continue outperforming growth. Because without bond yields, we don't get a proper validation of a strong economic recovery coming forward. And we need those things for a for, for, for proper um, value performance, uh, performance recovery to continue. Perfect. Thanks, Michael. Perhaps we can just shift our focus more on the uh, uh, fixed income side, as, as you've kind of alluded to towards the back end of your comments there. Um, what are your views on, on credit, uh, both in investment grade and, and sub-investment grade? Uh, we've seen sub-investment grade perform particularly well. Um, we'd be interested to get your thoughts on that. So on the credit side, um, as you said, splitting between investment grade and sub-investment grade, the first thing to say is that both of those segments have done incredibly well this year. Um, if we look at spreads, for example, spreads are nearly back to um, where they were before COVID, certainly in US and Europe. And similarly, emerging market spreads have also done very, very well. So we've already had a very strong market for credit. Naturally, the question is, well, how, how can this be sustained in 2021? Well, we're still optimistic on credit. And again, the answer comes back to how do we think government bonds will do next year? You can tell by what I said earlier about reducing our government bond exposure is that we think that government bonds are slowly, uh, are not really the right thing you want to hold for carry, for income, but also its hedging capabilities could even be questioned, um, as we've seen in the last few months of this year. So what do we actually like in credit? Um, we, we think that the best way to think about this is splitting it into two segments. So if we're thinking about what credit we want to hold for protection, I think that IG continues to, uh, continues to, to be very attractive in that regard particularly uh, US and European IG, we think is still okay to hold as, as a hedge, not so much as an income or return generating asset. But 
looking for return opportunities in credit, we really see three segments here. That's high yield, emerging market debt, and the alternative segment, which includes um, securitized and convertibles. So yields have fallen, spreads have fallen, but it's important to recognize that we're still very much in a search for yield world where interest rates are even lower than they were before and governments and central banks have every incentive to keep those yields low. So investors will once again be forced up the risk curve and drive spreads and yields to even tighter levels um, by the end of 2021 than even where we are today. Thanks for that, Michael. Perhaps just to uh, cap it kept the conversation off, you, you, you referenced alternatives. Um, any other areas within the alternatives bucket that uh, you're finding interest? Sure. So within alternatives, we, it, we can also discuss the REIT sector, which of course is, has been uh, impacted very strongly this year. If we look underneath the surface, you've seen a very market performance differentiation between areas like malls, hotels that have underperformed by more than 50% compared to areas like land and data centers, which are actually still up year to date, uh, incredibly enough. With an overall yield of 4% on average, however, we think that this is uh, something an income-focused investor should definitely look at, but we don't think it's the best space for capital gains. In terms of the overall total return package, I think we're still looking, we're still interested in um, high yield EMD and REITs belong in that alternatives package. But we would say um, if you were going into REITs, then one needs to be very selective and careful about how we go about it due to some of the structural problems that are still inherent in particularly some of those very cheap, very beaten up segments. Perfect. Thanks for that, Michael. I guess in summary, some green shoots from an economic perspective um, and from a, uh, an asset class strategy standpoint, a bit more of a balanced approach, You taking some more risk rotating into, into value, but still it's not exactly sunshine and roses out there. One still needs to, to be selective in terms of where one plays. Ugo, Michael, thank you very much both for, for your time today. And uh, to our listeners, thank you very much for listening in throughout the year. Hope you have a safe holiday season and we'll see you in the new year. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. Schroeder's Investment Management Limited is an authorized financial services provider. FSP number 48998, registration number 01893220, incorporated in England and Wales. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation. Any funds, services or products mentioned might not be appropriate for all listeners. Please speak to a financial advisor if you are unsure as to the suitability of any investment.